The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live. I'm Lisa Belfast, Senior Writer at Barron's. Thanks for joining us today. With us, we have Nancy Tangler, CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Laffer Tangler Investments. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you, Lisa. It's so good to be with you. So one thing I think that is top of mind for many listeners, we have stocks falling yet again today. Where does this end, Nancy? Yeah, I think what makes this feel so painful, Lisa, is that, you know, that the uh, magnitude of the correction is is not particularly dramatic, but it's it's gone on for so long. We're approaching 140 calendar days, uh, nine, over 95 uh, trading days. And you contrast that to 2020 when we were 33 calendar days and 23 trading days short steep and and dramatic but it was over and i think in the last 15 years people have gotten used to this that you know you buy the dip but this is a this is what a bear market feels like um if you look at the technicals the technicians will tell you that not every sort of indicator is in place but if if you um look at it the way i look at it and you look at the multiples on very high quality stocks that have even still strong growth prospects It feels to me like we're getting near a bottom, which is not to say it'll be over immediately. Uh, I think we're going to bounce along for a while, but I expect a pretty strong second half to the year and particularly in the fourth quarter. So, you know, we have the Federal Reserve obviously raising interest rates about to start quantitative tightening or the reversal of some of the bond purchases that they made over the past two years in response to the pandemic. Um, a couple questions there. First, are you worried about the start of QT? What do you think it means for markets? Um, well, it, it it means tighter uh, tightening up of liquidity, and that's always um, something the market has to work through. I, I actually feel, Lisa, like the market is pricing in kind of the worst case scenario, and that the the surprise may be to the upside. I believe if the Fed came out and said, we're raising 75 basis points next meeting, the market would applaud that. This real drive and weakness came after uh, Fed Chair Powell said, uh, no, we're not going to go 75. I I don't know why he, what what could have possibly possessed him to say that? Because as soon as the market had time to digest it, we've begun this long slog downward. So I I think a good deal of it is priced in, um, at least the initial stages of the tightening. But until the Fed shows leadership, I mean, I I, I hate saying that, but I I feel like uh, his policies have been rudderless and and really caused the problem um, rather than served as a correction to the problem. Yeah, and that's one thing you and I have talked about is, you know, this this idea of a policy mistake. And so is is it that there is, you know, another mistake in the works to sort of address the original policy mistake, which was, of course, you know, getting inflation wrong and calling it transitory for too long when it, it wasn't? Um, do we have another policy mistake in the making, you know, do you think around over tightening into a slowdown? Um, well, 
if if they front end load the tightening, which it doesn't look like they're going to do to the extent that they need to, i.e. the 75 basis points, uh, I think I think we could actually navigate a soft landing. The economy is in pretty solid shape. And even with the retail numbers that we saw uh, come out this week, yes, there's rising inventories. And I hope we'll talk about that uh, because I think that has a deflationary uh, pressure on prices. But that, you know, we had Home Depot beat, beat and raise guidance. And so the consumer is still in good shape. Corporate balance sheets are in good shape. And I think the economy can tolerate a front end loaded increase. So far, the Fed has used rhetoric and the bond market has done all the heavy lifting. Uh, but I'm just worried that they they don't get it and they've lost the confidence of the market. To me, that is the bigger risk and the biggest policy mistake of all. How does the Fed regain the confidence of the market? Uh, I, I think if they would act aggressive instead of just talk aggressive. I mean, we've heard uh, Powell say we're going to be nimble and humble, and we really haven't seen either. We've heard him say, honestly, and this is a quote, I have, we have all the tools we need to dampen inflation, but they haven't utilized them or they don't work. Um, and then, you know, we've heard him say uh, various things in terms of tightening. We haven't talked about it, but then it, it showed up in the minutes that they had talked about it. So I, I think the markets are um, are going to need a lot of convincing uh, because the, there is there doesn't seem to be uh, a, a cogent direction um, being articulated by the by the chair and by the various members. And, you know, speaking of Powell and some of his recent commentary, he has been saying that, you know, he's pretty confident that he and, and the other Fed members can engineer soft landing, meaning they can cool inflation without tipping the economy into a recession. But recently, it seems like his language there has started to change. He started using the word softish, um, which, you know, <laughs> and when you translate Fed speak, that's that's um, it seems deliberate. Um, and then the other thing he's been saying is, um, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. Let's just stick with the softish comment. Um, and, then, <laughs> and, you know, and that reminds me of something um, some others have said to me, and we even heard it from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen about, um, you know, needing a little bit of luck. And I've been wondering, what does that mean? You know, what does softish mean? Um, and what is what is the kind of luck that we in the Fed need to, to actually pull that off? Yeah, that that's that's disheartening, uh, to say the least. I, I think that, you know, once the Fed went um, and they, they they did this after a Jackson Hole meeting, not this last year, but the year before, they went what they called data dependent. And and so when you're looking backwards at things like inflation, it's too late. And there are a lot of leading indicators that that they were not paying attention to. So enough criticism. I think by luck, what they mean is that the supply chain will clear uh, that that um, because that that's what they're attributing this, this to. Whereas I think many of us understand that there was too much spending this year, this last year. Uh, we were already back to work. We already had a vaccine and Congress spent 1.5 to 1.8 trillion on the American Recovery Act and just poured more money into the system as as demand was still contract. I mean, as supply was still contracting. And so um, much of this is policy mistake out of Washington. It's not the Fed alone. They exacerbated it. They were focused on employment, but the government was still paying people to stay 
at home. And so they, that was a major misread. But wishing on a star that the supply chain, which I do think is improving again, it did improve. Then we had Omicron and it and it seems to be sort of clearing out again. Uh, the Port of L.A. did more in the, in the first quarter, more offloads than um, by a, a, I don't remember the number exactly, but by a significant percentage than they than they normally do. Um, but one of the bright spots and, and one one thing that may bring luck is inventories. So if you've got Walmart and and um, Target both have 18 percent higher inventory levels than they normally do in October, which is their highest inventory month as they prepare for Christmas, uh, that's going to put deflationary pressure on goods. And and that's that's the good news. The offset bad news is that we're seeing inflation in services. And and a lot of that is is pretty sticky. Uh, So I I don't I don't think hope is a strategy. and so I think, again, this, these are things that the market's paying attention to. I mean, Jay Powell is certainly no Paul Vol- Volcker. You know, you mentioned inflation showing up now in services. And um, there, it seems like rent is is maybe the most stubborn. Um, and that's in part because rent seemed to follow home prices by maybe a year, year and a half lag. And so, you know, we've got this tricky situation where home prices um, are are still rising, even though demand is falling as mortgage rates rise. And I'm wondering what you think, how does that shake out? You know, it seems like these dynamics are pretty tricky for um, the Fed to to really manage and to try to um, to to keep this tight walk going. How do they do that? Well, they need some help from the private sector and they need some help from Washington, to be sure. One of my clients in Florida um, said it, I thought best. You know, he said we could solve this whole problem if we just drilled for oil. And there's some wisdom in that, because one of the things that drives prices across the board, not rents necessarily, but prices is the cost of fuel. And we're hearing that in many of the reports. But as long as as, as housing remains scarce, and, and I'm in Scottsdale, uh, I split my time between Scottsdale and Incline Village, both of which have a, a, a very small supply of housing and a lot of demand from Californians who are coming to these places and going, oh, that's that's really cheap by our standards. So they've driven up the home prices in 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 Arizona and in Incline Village. And I'm you know I'm a beneficiary of that, but it doesn't help people who are entering the market. And so then as rent see as apartments see that, they they just increase rents. One of my anal, uh, portfolio managers here, he lives in an apartment building next door to our offices. Uh, they have they have stopped renting month to month. Uh, and his his rent, by the way, went up 15 percent and they're retaining the uh, apartments for Californians and other people from out of state who are buying homes and waiting for them. And he said they're in many cases charging seven thousand dollars a week for an apartment that he pays you know, considerably less for on a monthly basis. So that that doesn't solve the problem. And I don't know that the Fed can do anything about that. Uh, that that's the problem when when you've waited this long, it's hard to put that genie back in the bottle. Yeah, and that anecdote, you know, it reminds me of some some um, information I've heard from my own reporting, which is that even as mortgage rates rise, um, there's so much investor capital pointed at real estate, yep. given that even though yields might be falling there, um, they're still better than where invest what, what investors can get elsewhere. And many 
many of these investors are cash buyers. They're not affected by mortgage rates. So it seems like this tool might be a bit blunted this time around. It, it is. And then there was a point in time when um, when uh, the Fed chair said, we're going to really work with the balance sheet um, because that's that's where we can control um, you know, the, the Im impact on inflation. We don't want to hurt Main Street. We'd much rather take it out of Wall Street. And so he was implying that they weren't going to raise rates as much, but then it was as, as though that were never said. You're absolutely right. Uh, there've been a lot of transactions in, in Arizona. Uh, I don't have the actual numbers, but my daughter just sold her home and she sold it to an investor who paid cash, waived everything. And then she bought a home. And they only wanted to sell it to somebody who wasn't an investor uh, because it had been in their family. And so you're seeing that in particular in this market. And, and you're right. Most buyers are cash buyers. It's the only way you can get a house in Arizona right now, pretty much, is to be a house buyer. I mean, a cash buyer. So I'm not sure what they can do about that. Uh, and what's going to happen is they're just going to hurt, you know, the the lower income cohorts by raising rates so dramatically, if indeed we get that. I think this is a good time to remind our audience to please send in your questions for Nancy. Um, and there is one that we have from Vance. Um, his question is on this very topic. He is asking Nancy, um, the, the the effect of rising interest rates, tighter policy on vacation and second homes. What do you think happens to the the resort second home market through this cycle? So I, I think eventually it gets squeezed, and it probably gets squeezed first. Um, although uh, my second home in is in Lake Tahoe, and um, we're seeing cash buyers come in there as well because of the work. Uh, uh, ability to work from anywhere. And so it may be that this time the, the trend will be a little bit different. Uh, it'll be more expensive because the mortgage uh, rates on, on second homes are usually higher. But if you have the cash, you're impervious to 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 uh, that. And so we're, we're not seeing any price weakness in Incline Village. Uh, we're starting to see a little softness in Arizona. So it's it's difficult to tell. It, it depends. I mean, I think work from home is is a permanent trend. And so it may be that you know, those homes will hold up just as well. And in terms of prices, it'll just be a little more expensive, as I said. You know, in the work from home point, it's a good segue into the labor market. Um, we've got, you know, speaking of sort of tricky dynamics, you've got wages that are rising to a point where it's causing pain for many employers, but still not enough to bring in some of the workers who are still missing. And still not enough for many workers to keep up with inflation. You've got real or inflation adjusted wages falling fast. Um, and I wonder, you know, where does the labor market go from here, do you think? Um, obviously, when the Fed starts to tighten, oftentimes that means higher unemployment. Um, is that what we need right now or or something else? Well, I, I think we've proven uh, in the in the previous five years that that you can actually have a, 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 a strong economy and super low unemployment without inflation, because that was always the worry uh, historically. And um, but I think what's what's going to happen this time, and we're already starting to see it, the the industries and sectors that are most affected at the moment, like mortgage companies, or uh, like the the um, the the home the, the companies that benefited from work from home, so Peloton, DocuSign, all of those companies, you've already seen a lot of the air come out, and they've started to to announce layoffs and uh, and hiring freezes at companies like Facebook. So it's it's marginal at the moment. I don't think it's totally meaningful. But in our investment um, 
focus. We, we want to focus on companies that are either A, involved in improving productivity or are in the sectors that are the most productive. That is, they produce the more rep, the most revenues per employee than the rest of the sectors. And so that's energy, ironically, and uh, technology. And so we've been adding to our holdings there because we think productivity is ultimately what gets us out of this problem. And, uh, and so we want to be participating in those stocks that are just getting painted with the same brush as all tech or you know all stocks. And so we've been in adding those names. That's interesting what you say about tech, especially um, considering the the outsized weakness there lately. Are there any uh, specific parts of the tech sector, any companies that you particularly like right now? Yes, absolutely. So we um, we are focused on cybersecurity. Uh, you saw that Palo Alto Networks reported earnings yes uh, last night. They they beat beat and raised. It was an excellent report. Um, we've been in the stock a while, but it sold off like thirty plus percent this year, on on really no reason. Um, the company has delivered earnings. We saw the same thing with ServiceNow and Microsoft. Uh, they both reported excellent earnings reports, and the CEO Bill McDermott of Next ServiceNow came out and said. We are a deflationary solution, <laughs> and uh, that was how he opened the the earnings call. And both of those companies beat, beat, and raised, and yet they've been pummeled along with everything else. So their multiples are now pretty attractive. When the economy is slowing as it is, you always want to be invested in reliable growers, and so that that goes beyond technology, but it most definitely includes technology. And then, so anything sort of associated with the cloud or pretty much anything is of interest to us. And and then semis. I mean, we you know we hear that. That, um, they're stockpiling. We, I, I'm not hearing that on the earnings calls. I'm hearing that companies are are rationing very carefully who they sell their chips to and making sure that they have an immediate need for them. And so companies like uh, Taiwan Semi uh, that have been, you know, just kind of thrown out, or uh, Texas Instruments, which has a, a super powerful capital allocation plan, and they return a lot of the capital to the shareholders. Strong dividend growth in that company. Taiwan Semi has uh, strong dividend growth. So does Broadcom. And so these are the kind of companies that that we're uh, interested in 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 that part of the space. Lamb Research would be another, but all of which have been, you know, sort of torched as well. <laughs> we have a related question from Lee. He gets at. You know your your point, Nancy, that there are um, some contours within tech. He says the you know the original high flyers are still selling at very high PE multiples. He mentions Bitcoin and other very speculative instruments are still relatively high. Um, you know, what do you think about some of those um, most speculative areas? Do you think there is still more pain to come? Do you have any thoughts specifically around crypto? Well, so I'll take the first part of the question um, on, in tech. We we took a lot of the the sort of high flyer tech out of our portfolio last summer. Uh, I, it wasn't because I knew something was going to happen. Uh, I just didn't like the way they were acting, and they they felt really lofty. And we had profits, so we we took them. The one stock we kept, and it's been punished, but I still think uh, it is part of the solution as we move forward in this century is is square slash block. Uh, they just had an investor day. It was it was uh, well received. Uh, that company, Segway, is being clobbered by by crypto because of his commitment to Bit Bitcoin. Um, I, listen, I I love the idea and I love the technology of crypto. I, I think it might sort of chop around in here for a while because it it's now proven. It's not really a um, 
a store of value, a digital store of value like gold. It hasn't acted. It's acted like a risk asset. But that doesn't mean that uh, there isn't a purpose and there isn't a reason to own it. So I, I, we can't own it for our clients because we can't store it. Um, so we don't, but we own some of the names around it in a, in a strategy that we uh, that we run called Global Revolution, which invests in all the kind of uh, disruptive technologies, green energy, uh, blockchain, etc. And so I, I think there's a place for it in, in portfolios. It's just hard. You just got to be willing to own it for the long haul. That that's the only thing I would say about that because there's a lot um, a lot of big money. You know, the it's like one or ten one percent of the uh, owners of crypto own like 90% of it. So you just got to know that the, the game is a little bit rigged against you, but not if you are willing to hold it for a long time. And it has shown to be really correlated, it seems, with the stock market, in particular, the NASDAQ, um, which is maybe something different than a lot of people um, right. set out for maybe when they got involved. Yeah, I think you're right about that, Lisa. And, and on that point, um, we have a question from Eric. He asks, which asset classes do you see least correlated to the impacts of Fed tightening? Yes. You know, I'll start by saying this. I've been doing this since the mid-1980s, and this is by far the most complex investing environment <laughs> I've ever experienced. And I'm starting to hear more and more people um, bring that up. So we, we are dealing with it like this. We run, uh, for our clients, we have them in equity and we have them in um dividend paying companies, uh, as well as growth at a reasonable price companies. And both of those strategies have been able to outperform their relative benchmark. That's the good news, but they're still down. That's the bad news. Uh, our two strategies that show positive returns um, for the year uh, and therefore low correlation with equities, to be sure, um, our, uh, our commodity global revolution strategy, the one I just mentioned, that's invested in the metals and miners and planetary decarbonization, blockchain, carbon credits, things that have low correlation with equities. Uh, and then we have a dynamic inflation strategy that we've run for about 15 years. And it is invested in all the things that would benefit from inflation and uh, just received a five-star rating from um, Morningstar, which also our equity strategy that I run has. And so we're, we're trying to, to, to play it that way because we don't think it's, we think it's too early potentially, though we're getting close to get into bonds. And we've been saying that since August of 2020, that bonds were riskier than stocks. And I haven't calculated the numbers recently, but a couple of weeks ago, if you ran the numbers from August 4th, when the 10-year treasury uh, hit a 50 basis point yield approximately, um, the TLT is down like 30% and stocks were still up 22%. So it, it is indeed difficult to find safe haven in bonds. So we've tried to move out into the, you know, allocate assets to the alternative space. And we also run a convertible strategy, which is also an interesting place to be because you get some of the equity market volatility, but you also have pretty high income stream. And I think those are the ways that you're going to sort of stay ahead of inflation and um, maybe be able to hide a little bit from Fed tightening. But that said, I feel like a lot of the Fed tightening is priced into the market already. And do you think we've got a few reader um, questions on, on this idea? Do you think that the market is overpriced now? Do you think the Fed doesn't actually complete all of the tightening that the market expects? So, uh, um, two part question. I'll, I'll answer the latter first. I 
I am in the camp and I um, have received pushback uh, sometimes when I'm on TV that they're not going to be able to raise rates as much as they have telegraphed and as much as the market is expecting. And I say that because central banks around the globe started raising rates 15 months ago. So we're very late to the party. There were over 100 uh, rate increases in central banks around around the world, um, many emerging market countries, but certainly before we even began. Uh, so that so that's one point. And the second point is it's a um, it's a, a midterm election year, and it, it I think they're going to feel the political pressure acutely as we get closer to the midterm elections. And that's why we're sort of expecting uh, that a lot of this is going to have worked its way through the market and we're going to see a rally in the fourth quarter. And so I'm cautioning people against trying to time the market and get out because they probably won't get back in in time. And, you know, to your first point around the Fed not being able to raise as much as they've indicated and as many market participants believe, do you think that that means we end up for a longer stretch of inflation, maybe lower than you know where we're at now, consumer prices are running at a, an annual rate above eight percent. So, cooler than that, but still well above what's traditionally been the two percent target. Do we do we kind of plateau somewhere above two? I I think so for the for the next few years. And um, the sticky, the Atlanta Fed sticky CPI is at four point nine percent. That includes your question about rents. That's the, one of the major components in there. Uh, and so yes, I do. I think we'll we'll sit somewhere. I mean, I'm not an economist, but um, I I do live in America. Unlike you know most of the Beltway crowd, I feel like they. I wrote a piece for our our clients that said uh, inside the Beltway might as well be outer space. They they just live very different than us. They don't pump gas. They get driven places. They, you know, they have a dining room. Now we've learned they get free Peloton memberships. And, and so they don't see what the rest of us are seeing. And I think there's, as you raise the point, higher wages, you're, those are, those are sticky. And so is higher rent. And so are higher healthcare costs. So I think we're going to be living in the three to 4% range for a long time. And it could be as high as five. Uh, I don't think we'll remain in the 8% range. I think we will see the supply chains clear out again. Somehow China's going to have to learn to live with COVID. Uh, so is New York. Um, I know they're back to a mask mandate, but or, or sort of uh, strongly encouraged. So I, I, th I think that's going to be what's going to drive this. And then we've got to come to grips with the, the energy problem. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I know I'm very opinionated on this point. I'll just make it quickly. Um, you, you can't have an administration that is going to, uh, um, is importing Russian oil and going to the Saudis and going to Venezuela and asking them to produce more. Um, uh, we, when you've got oil reserves here that are, and we produce much cleaner energy. So if the goal really is, um, you know, a cleaner environment, then we should be pumping more. And that would solve a great deal of the problem because the Saudis are at capacity. And, you know, we, we know what's going on with Russia and with Venezuela for that matter. And that all connects back to what you mentioned about your inflation strategy. Um, and you mentioned also too, you know, um, energy stocks and dividend stocks. Can you give any more specifics around um, certain plays you like right now? Yes. So um, energy stocks are interesting because they're, they are a cyclical trade traditionally, but 
we are going to need traditional energy um, much longer than I think um, the, the environmentalists would like, because the transition uh, to, to green energy is just going to be more difficult and, and take a lot longer. For example, um, we own uh, copper in, in both of those strategies and copper uh, you re requires four times as much copper in an electric vehicle than it does in in a, a combustible engine vehicle, but we have limitations on how much uh, the environmentalists want. And, and by the way, I'm an environmentalist. I spend half my time in Tahoe, but um, if you, you, you've got to be practical. And so they don't want the mining to continue. And so many of these companies have limited their mining capacity. And so the demand is going to be much higher than supply, and that's going to keep those prices higher. You also have problems with uh, with solar and wind. Uh, solar, California is a, a, a classic example of, you know, you can't, solar doesn't work at night till we figure out how to store the energy. Uh, They're going to probably continue to have rolling brownouts and 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 try to charge your Tesla in, in that environment. So we still like many of the names that uh, are driving old economy or old energy. Uh, EOG Resources is a great example of a company who has been very disciplined in returning capital uh, to shareholders and not um, sort of wildly increasing uh, production. So they've paid three special dividends in the last year, $1, $2, $1. And then they doubled their regular dividend to 75 cents. And they just announced a $1.80 special dividend again. So it's natural gas, it's Permian Basin. It's got a lot of the, the elements that you'd want to own as an energy investor. Um, if you if you look at um, uh so some of the the miners, Freeport actually just got clobbered because their fuel costs were high, and uh, but yet they're a copper producer, and so I think this is an interesting opportunity to take a look at that company because it's it, copper is used in many aspects of green energy, not just electric vehicles, uh, and then there are many ETFs that you can buy that invest in. Um, you know, lithium and carbon credits and things that that are interesting for, you know, for the green energy revolution. Uh, and then in in just the individual names, we also like Devon Energy, which we own in our portfolios. And um, we also own Pioneer. And I'm trying to remember the rest because we have a lot of strategies. Uh, we own Chevron. That's sort of boring. But if you if you're afraid of risk, uh, it's a reliable dividend grower and it's an integrated oil company. I am going to hop back to some reader questions to, sorry, I should say listener questions to try to fit a few more in. We've got one from Hanyu who asks, what are some um, economic models? I think maybe another way to say that are, Nancy, what are some of your favorite indicators? I know you like to look at the Atlanta Fed sticky CPI, anything else that you're watching most closely right now? Yes, I think the thing that um, really lets us know if the economy is um, troubled are credit spreads. And we've seen them widen, but we haven't seen them widen to the levels that indicate recession. Uh, we like that we look at the PMIs every month because purchasing manager index tells you what's going on in manufacturing. PMI manufacturing index and in services. And so, for example, one of the things that that alerted us to the slowing economy besides the math, right, it, we had such a fast growing economy last year, was, was watching those um, 
the deceleration, even though they're still expansionary, uh, we saw a lot of companies move from the far right quadrant, which is expansionary and uh, improving, to the top left quadrant, which was expansionary but decelerating. And so we, we look at the underlying components. New orders uh, are down, uh, inventories are up. That, that tells us a lot. Delivery times are improving. Uh, that, that usually tells you um, that, I mean, I'm sorry, they're, they're late, they're lengthening. And so that usually tells you um, that things are backed up. And so we, we look at those things very carefully. And then we, we are very focused on uh, unit labor costs because all of that factors in um, productivity. It goes into productivity. And so we watch that and then the productivity numbers. But in the short term, productivity is very volatile. Okay. And then we've got a few questions about treasuries in particular. Um, Joseph is asking, what are the odds of bonds and stocks both decline in price and where are the 10-year treasury yields headed um, in over the next six months? Got to get out my crystal ball. Um, <laughs> yeah, we have seen bond prices and stock prices decline in tandem this year. And that's, I think, what's been very painful for many investors. We, we long ago gave up the 60-40 uh, sort of traditional allocation because we knew we were ending a 40-year bull market in bonds. So I think, um, as I said, we're not ready to go back into bonds yet, uh, but we're getting close. We're starting to uh, look at ladders for some of our um, some of our wealthy clients, muni ladders, and then also corporate ladders. I I, th I don't know, but I think the Treasury could end the year between three and three and a half percent. Um, but remember, that's not necessarily because the Fed's raising rates. That's because the bond market is doing a lot of the heavy lifting. So, I mean, we've already hit 3% and then we've pulled away from it. Uh, could it be 4? I just don't think so. But it, it may be. There's been a lot of surprises this year uh, or the last couple of years. So we'll, we'll just have to see how how things work through the system and whether or not we really do get decelerating earnings, which we are expecting but I'm not convinced the market has priced in entirely. We've got a question from Patty. She asks, are there ways to still grow the economy and also reduce inflation? I think that that gets to some other reader questions um, specifically around, you know, stagflation and, and the idea that we might be headed there. Yeah, I don't want to overstate this, but I think one of the most critical factors is the price of oil. And it's always been kind of a, a spike that leads into a recession. Uh, and, and this one is self-inflicted in many ways because we know we have the oil. So I, I think that's going to be a critical if we see any change in policy or any improvement in production, because the Saudis have already told us, OPEC has told us that, you know, they're pretty much at capacity and they're going to raise you know, I think it's 400,000 barrels a month. Uh, I'm sorry, 400,000 barrels a day each month. But I, I'm not convinced they can deliver that. And so when you think about the far reaching effects of energy on inflation and how many products, I mean, I put on my mascara this morning, there's petroleum products in there. I take out my kayak when I go to Tahoe, petroleum products, plastic uh, is made with. So 
I, it, it permeates and really just morphs through the economy. And I think if we could see some relief there, as well as an opening up of the supply chain, then I think Powell has a chance at his softish landing, because we are going to see the deflationary pressure, as I mentioned, on goods, on the prices of goods, because of these high inventory builds. I mean, Target said, you know, their biggest problem was they had too many TVs and appliances that they had to store and move. And, and so that was, you know, you're, you're bound to see sales on those products uh, as demand softens as well. Okay, I think we have time for one more. This is from Eric. He asks, what is your view um, of globalization? Um, and that, you know, lots of companies, lots of buzz around the idea that factories might be inclined to bring supply chains closer to home, given what has happened during the course of the pandemic and, and all of the supply chain issues. Um, but that's it's got a connection to inflation. You know, part of the reason um, over the past decade we really didn't go, get past 2 percent was because of um, all of the imports and the idea that things have been cheaper. So if we bring things home, I mean. One, one question I've had, I guess, related to this is how likely is it that companies really do start to bring things home? And then, you know, from there, do we have to worry about some some more inflation? That is a great question. I don't think we, we actually know the answer to it yet. But I will say we're seeing companies live up to their reshoring or onshoring, however you want to characterize it, uh, announcements. And, and we're seeing it in Arizona. I mean, this this sort of used to be a trust fund town. Now we've got, we had Intel, but they're bringing, uh, they're building two more plants or foundries. Uh, we have Taiwan Semi coming here. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of companies announce that they're moving out of China, out of um, other parts of Asia and, and moving um, back to the States. And they seem to be collating in the, the Southwest and the Midwest. Uh, and, and so the, the cost of living has been cheaper there, which would argue they might have a chance at keeping prices lower. But now we're seeing in Arizona prices. I mean, we have one of the highest inflation rates in the nation and our housing uh, prices have gone through the, the roof. So I, I think there's, um, there's going to be a lot of um, there's going to be a lot of variations on the theme. Uh, many companies are moving to India. Uh, we're also seeing, obviously, the, the movement to Vietnam. But I think the definite movement is away from China. And that may not necessarily be a bad thing, um, but it is going to probably add higher prices into the equation because, obviously, we have to pay more here. But less in Vietnam and less in India. So uh, I, I've seen all, all, all sort of variations of that from uh, sort of multinational companies in the U.S. And, and actually smaller businesses as well in the manufacturing sort of segment. So um, globalization uh, played a really important part in low lower inflation. Uh, I think governments are now seeing other aspects of it that may not be as appealing. And so a lot's going to depend also on what happens with the dollar. I mean, we have a strong dollar right now, so we're not importing inflation. Uh, when and if the dollar weakens, that, that will add another pressure that um, will be difficult to navigate. Which might, might time line, line up with a lot of these moves because, you know, we're talking about the Fed maybe already cutting um, in a, a year, two years from now. You're right, Lisa. Usually it's on average five months after they stop hiking, they start cutting. So <laughs> it all moves so fast. Yep. Strap in. <laughs> I think that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Nancy, for being here. Thank you, Lisa. It's, it's so good. And I love your column. I want every listener to hear that. Read it every week. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's really nice of you. Please join us again on Monday. We will 
have Barron's Roundtable on the future workplace. Business leaders are confronting a tight labor market and evolving workforce. Investors are weighing the opportunities, opportunities and risks. Barron's journalists will be in conversations with executives to explore what companies need to do to compete and thrive. Thank you for listening. Be well and have a great weekend. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.